Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. I am incredibly honored this week to be joined by president of the new school in New York City, Dr. Dwight McBride. Dr. McBride became the university's ninth president in April of 2020. Dr. McBride is an accomplished higher education leader, educator, scholar, and author. Over nearly three decades in higher education, he has encouraged innovation in scholarship and teaching, launched initiatives to build interdisciplinary strength around global challenges, created environments that foster inclusive excellence, and expanded opportunities for experiential learning. The summer 2022 issue of the journal Social Research, Books That Matter Too, invited notable scholars to select one book that has had a deep and lasting influence on their thinking and life. Dr. McBride's essay, A Rising Tide Lifts All Boats, reflects on Phyllis Wheatley's poems on various subjects. He joined us to discuss his essay, which not only details Wheatley's remarkable life and writing, but examines what over 200 years of analysis and criticism of Wheatley's work can show us about the history of racism in the United States and its enduring impact on African-American literature. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McBride. I really appreciate your time. Delighted to be with you. The first question I like to ask all our guests is, tell us your academic origin story. What led you to your field of study? Well, that's both uh, an easy question and a difficult one to answer. Um, I always, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. I was uh, always a good student. Uh, I was naturally uh, drawn to books and learning. Uh, in fact, I was known as a bookish kid. Um, and I was encouraged in those pursuits by my parents who saw, um, really saw the value in, in educational opportunities for both me and my sister. Um, and they wanted us to have opportunities they themselves didn't get to have. Neither of them were able to go to college. So my sister and I were both first-gen uh, college students. Um, I especially was fond of the mix of what I'd call sort of precision and potential in language. Mm. Um, uh, and as an example, when I was in school, I, especially middle school, I loved diagramming sentences. <laughs> um, wow, in fact, that's fantastic. I, <laughs> I thought there might be a future, right? A career in that. I was always the kid that Mrs. Murphy, my seventh grade teach, English teacher, um, whenever there was a, a sentence that uh, no one else in the class could figure out how to diagram, Ms. Murphy said, Dwight, would you want to come to the board? Wow. So I was that, I was that kid, right? <laughs> That's um, wonderful. <laughs> um, at the time, it didn't always feel wonderful, but in retrospect, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. No. Um, so if, if, if I, um, I guess if I had to have, have a more concrete answer to that question, though, I have to say that, um, what drew me to uh, most to the field of study was really some incredible mentors mm -hmm. that I had the opportunity to work with at Princeton. Um, mm -hmm. I was, you know, because I came from a place where the prestige careers that you know of when you're a first-gen college student are law, business, medicine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I knew medicine was out for me because I didn't do blood and gore and I, I you know, so that was a wrap. Um, and law was where I thought I was going to go. You know, I'd sort of romanticized these heroic figures on TV and I could see my, you know. So I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but in part be just because I had not been exposed to a lot of other opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so that really happened for me as an undergraduate um, at Princeton. 
where I uh, had incredible mentors, had the opportunity to work uh, uh, with, uh, I mean, really some of the most amazing names in African-American and American letters. Um, Al Rabito, Ruth Simmons, right? Um, Valerie Smith, Howard Taylor, Diana Fuss, um, Eduardo Cadava, Emory, the late Emory Elliott, uh, Juanima Lubiano, Esther Shore. There's an interesting story there. We may not have time for today. Love her. Um, Nell Painter, Cornell West uh, were all among the folks that I worked with. And I had the opportunity to be a research assistant to the incomparable Toni Morrison. That oh, wow. was an experience that quite literally, and there's a whole you know story there, changed my life. Um, and each of those mentors and those scholars, they guided my curiosities. They um, nurtured my love of learning. They were patient. I mean, I in retrospect, I now know how busy all of those people were, but they <laughs> right. always seemed to have time, right, for me. Um, I never felt like I was an inconvenience to any of them. Um, and so it was really after those heady days that I started to think during those heady days, I started to really think about um, graduate school and, mm. um, and, and thought and understood that there was a career path to be had um, in the study of ideas, um, mm. things that really had excited me so much. So it really, it started there. It was a really important moment for me. That's wonderful. What a what a wonder and what a what a catalog of of mentors and I mean, teachers. when I again, it, it just it just happened that all of those people had converged in that place in that time. Right. When I think about the kind of happy accident of history that some of it was mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. it was really impressive. Really impressive. Yeah. The latest issue of the journal Social Research is a special issue, which is titled Books That Matter Too. Uh, too, because it is the second time that the journal has invited notable scholars to reflect on how books deeply affect their lives um, and what what they think and how they think and what they think about. Mm -hmm. um, and your contribution, your essay, which is called A Rising Tide Lifts All Boats, reflects mm -hmm. on Phyllis Wheatley's poems of various subjects, which came out in 1773. Mm -hmm. My question is, when you were asked to contribute to the issue, um, when you were posed with that question, what book matters to you, was Wheatley's work immediate choice or was picking a particular title a difficult decision for you? I, I, I have to say, I did think for a, a little, I mean, I, I, I paused, right, <laughs> okay. a, a little um, uh, about a few other contenders uh, that I might write on. Um, so, I mean, any number of great texts by James Baldwin, but particularly Giovanni's Room, which has meant so much to me uh, in a number of ways. Um, Melvin Dixon's novel, the late Melvin Dixon's novel, Vanishing Rooms, uh, was also one that I considered, a novel that I feel, I feel like has still not gotten its due, uh, and in part because Dixon died so young, um, mm. his body of work, and I've edited a, a volume of his critical essays um, as a, in part because of that, because he's someone that I think had he had a longer life, um, we would probably know him almost as well as we know Baldwin now. I really mm. think he had that level of just talent and potential. And um, and I also thought about Patricia Williams's um, book, The Alchemy of Race and Rights, mm. um, which is an examination of some of the systemic biases, particularly racial biases in America and American law in particular. Um, that book um, for... Uh, 
so many reasons um, in my academic life, my early days in graduate school really just opened up space for me for a different kind of thinking mm. um, and particularly what you could do with experience in the context of critical uh, of critical work and scholarly work. Um, she just, she opened that up in a way that I'd never seen it done before. In fact, I don't mind sharing that Patricia Williams is the only uh, person who's ever received a fan letter from me. Uh, I actually um, <laughs> sat down and I wrote, and I used to have, I'm sure I still had a were to dig through my things. And she actually responded, which was, oh, wow. yeah, and we've, been, and we've been in touch over the years uh, as well uh, and, and stayed in touch with each other. Um, but just an incredible, incredible book. But as much as I considered uh, other um, books and authors, in some ways, Wheatley was a natural choice for me uh, to honor with this essay. Her life uh, is an extraordinary story. Um, her poetry um, is just an uncommon, when you think about the time and the context and massive accomplishment. And now what we would talk about as her impact as well, uh, I don't think can really be overstated. And there's, I think a need for more people to know her story and her legacy and her work. And so that really did, um, um, went out for me. And in some ways, um, I think it's not unlike, I mean, when you think about the murdered child um, from Morrison's Beloved, uh, for me, Wheatley continues uh, to haunt me and that's in a similar way, right? Mm -hmm. um, almost in a, a, a way that seems greedy in her desire, right? She's always been there and mm -hmm. sometimes in the background, sometimes in the forefront, um, but urging the telling of her story. Um, and I, you know, I, I could say more about how I came to that and came to her, but um, I, she's been with me for a long time. Um, and so in many ways, this essay was an opportunity um, to return again to that story, in particular the story of her critics. Um, I think that the story of Wheatley is um, also it's one that um, generations of critics and scholars have continued to grapple with mm -hmm. um, in terms of American literary history and American history. And, um, and at different times, people have recuperated her work, they've mm -hmm. denigrated her work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in some ways that story, the critical of the critical reception, which I do talk about in the mm -hmm. essay, mm -hmm. um, is one that also is a part of the telling of the American story um, with, of race, right? And uh, her reception, her treatment uh, over time and how that changed and evolved, um, I think is a story worth, um, worth telling and one that I think is instructive. Um, and I think it informs uh, a lot of what Amer a lot about American intellectual and cultural history. So that's what drew, drew, uh, sort of drew me to particularly that critical reception of her work, mm -hmm. um, which, and this is the first time I've been able to sort of talk about that in print, which was, which was a great opportunity. And I, and we will we will get to the the story of the story in a, in yeah. a minute, but I, but I'm glad <laughs> you, you you touched on 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 sort of like how she's been with you for such a long time, um, which was a, a 
terrific segue for my next question, which is I just wanted to sort of ask you um, on a more personal level, can you tell us about your experience with her work? Do you remember the first time you learned about her? Do you remember the first time you you read her poetry? Where was the where was the start of that of that relationship you have with her? Um, it's as I said, it's a long, it's a long relationship. So I'm gonna try to do this briefly. Um, okay. the, my, my own interest with her began. Uh, I think it was the fall of 1988 uh, when I was an undergraduate at Princeton. Mm -hmm. um, and at you know, the time, I presume this is still the case at Princeton, all undergraduates are required to complete uh, an independent research paper called the junior paper, one each semester. Um, and I was looking for topics um, at that time, doing something that students today uh, may uh, may sound a little um, old school, but I was searching the card catalog, right? Yes, and yes, I'm with browsing you. <laughs> the stacks, right? Yes. And, um, and I was talking to a lot of fellow English majors. Um, mm -hmm. This was also one of the things that everyone communicated with each mm -hmm. other about, mm -hmm. right? Yep. It created a kind of an intellectual community, um, and. And just about what to you know topics they were doing, what I wanted to do, and I eventually came across this book by a man named Jay Saunders Redding. Um, mm. And the name of the book, I think, it was written in the 1930s, uh, was called "To Make a Poet Black." Mm. And in that book, Redding um, he writes about this, you know, at the time to me unknown black woman poet from the 18th century named Phyllis Wheatley and goes on to, um, uh, to say that she was someone who did not necessarily care about the plight of her, in, her fellow enslaved brothers and sisters. In fact, the, the language was so specific that it stuck with me that he uses terms like um, blood, her work is bloodless, unracial, um, and negative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he's talking about this in relation, if you think about the 1930s, right? In relationship to a time, this is coming off the heels of the Harlem Renaissance where mm -hmm. the idea of race consciousness is really um, heightened among black thinkers. Um, and so I thought, I mean, you know, give me an 18th century African-American woman writing poetry, the first black woman to publish a book, right? 1773 who you say isn't interested in the question of race. I said, I'm in, I wanna, I wanna know more <laughs> about this. I'm not sure I buy this thing that this Redding guy is talking about, but either right. way, I then you know, wanted to know more about Phyllis Wheatley. And that was where the, um, where the story got going. And you know, Redding in many ways didn't extend to Wheatley the kind of critical generosity that I think um, her uh, um, has has certainly come to be understood today, right? And mm -hmm. that is the importance of looking at context. Um, so I, um, after reading Redding and then going to read Wheatley, right? Um, and I mean, I read everything I could get my little hands on at the time. Um, and in that first junior paper, which um, was looking at her as a kind of early, I called it misunderstood, mother of African-American literature. Um, and as I recall, the, uh, the essay was primarily a reading of Wheatley's poems uh, with the aid of some historical context um, to really help to understand um, her focus on liberation and slavery 
and how that had to be articulated in the context of the 18th century, right? So, right. of course, it wasn't going to sound like right, like the 1930s <laughs> exactly, talking about exactly. racism, right, mm-hmm. uh, and slavery. So, um, I uh, talked with my then faculty advisor, Diana Fuss, um, about the possibility of writing this, um, cri- looking at this sort of critical history of Wheatley in the senior thesis. And with her blessing, that's how the project began. And, you know, my interest in Wheatley persisted uh, during my time in graduate school um, at UCLA, where my uh, PhD dissertation in 1996 um, had a chapter on Wheatley and Olauda Equiano. Mm. And then en route to turning that project into my first book, um, my first monograph, um, which was called Impossible Witnesses, uh, Truth, Abolitionism, and Slave Testimony, um, I included in that project a chapter on Phyllis Wheatley as well. Mm. So since that time, I, I've had not only the opportunity to teach Wheatley uh, uh, in, on many occasions, but also to participate in conferences where, and panel discussions about Wheatley with fellow scholars and um, and actually to spend some time digging more and even into the archives a few years ago on a, a residency that was sponsored by the Mellon Foundation uh, at the American Antiquarian Society. Um, and there I was able to just find a lot of gems, particularly not, not just about me, but about people in her world and in that circle, right, to really um, make sure I was fully understanding that context in which she was writing. So, you know, when this opportunity came up again, it was it was a chance to honor her impact on American letters and on me. And so um, in some ways, again, it was while there were a few other contenders, this was the one that uh, it, it certainly won out. I, I can see why. I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about her writing in general. Is there, is there a particular poem or a line of her poetry that you find yourself returning to year after year? So I, I anticipated this question. Uh, <laughs> and so I did um, I did uh, take the occasion to print out a few things that oh, I please, wanted to make sure. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, <clears throat> I can give you two. And I'd, I'd love uh, to share both the poem and uh, then separately a line as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and first, you know, her probably most often cited poem is On Being Brought from Africa to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, uh, this isn't the poem that made her famous in her own time, but it's the one that it gets anthologized, Wheatley scholars return to, et cetera. You see it everywhere. Um, and many of her earliest critics derided the poem uh, as evidence of some uh, sort of shame that they presumed, particularly Black critics, uh, shame that they presumed Wheatley felt due to her race. Um, but the clearer reading of the poem, to, uh, to my, but in my estimation, is that um, that the the poem, uh, just as throughout much of her poetry, she considers in that Christianity and her salvation among the most uh, aspects, the most important aspects of her life. Right. Mm. So I think that explains why she prefers what she refers to in the poem as as Christian America right, which is the common denominator between her and, and her audience at the time, 
right. to pagan, in quotation marks, right, Africa. Um, and in a sense, Wheatley, I think, appropriates Christianity. This is the argument I make in the essay, uh, mm -hmm. in, or the chapter of the book as well. Um, she appropriates Christianity as a vehicle in order to empower her own view, uh, very important message. And, um, and that is uh, namely that blacks have reason, right? Which is, this is the enlightenment, right? So the, one of the primary arguments uh, for chat in supporting chattel slavery is that blacks were, did not participate in the same variety of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have reason. They didn't um, possess that in the, in, in the same measure as whites did. Uh, one of the hallmarks, early hallmarks of white supremacy. Um, and so um, she takes that logic and really works with it in this poem. So it, mm -hmm. I, I do want to just share the, it's a very brief poem, um, uh, that with you in, in whole and to say a few words about it. So here's the poem. <clears throat> it's in two parts, um, each of them uh, four lines. So twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too, once I redemption neither sought or knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember Christians, Negroes black as Cain may be refined to join and join the angelic train, right? Um, and so, in that first line uh, of the poem on being brought from Africa to America, I think she uh, that reference to Africa as a pagan land here, I mean, again, she's directing her criticism not against Africa, but again, rather against the ignorance of the Christian God that to her 18th century mind, right, mm -hmm. plagues the continent. Mm -hmm. um, Wheatley then goes on to make the subtle um, and political statement on the racism of American society when she says, some view our race with scornful eye, right? And, uh, and after quoting in the poem, the very next line, what is intended to be a sort of representative sentiment of many whites at the time, their color is a diabolic dye, right? Mm -hmm. um, she moves on to talk about um, uh, her readers as Christians and to reference them as Christians, cautioning them against such non-Christian views, right, of the Negro, when uh, she says, remember Christians, Negroes, Black is Cain. And I love the play on words there, because Cain is also the curse of Cain, Cain and Abel. It's another one of the myths that Black people were the descendants of Cain, right? So, um, and the mark that was put on Cain for killing his brother was our Blackness, right? That was another one of the popular myths of the time in the, 19, in the 18th century. So, but also Cain is sugar cane, right? Um, and unrefined sugar and cane, which is Black and references the Caribbean. I mean, so it's, just, it's, fa it's fascinating in so many ways. Uh, remember, Christians, Negroes, Black as Cain may be refined, right? Again, reference to that um, refining process and join the angelic train. So then she next goes on to critique her, uh, uh, to critique her society in an act of what I, what I would call interpolation. Um, she, again, calling them Christians, mm -hmm. uh, calling the readers uh, by that name. She warns them of their moral responsibility mm -hmm. to acknowledge her and the equality of herself and of blacks. And it's that symmetrical structure of the four, each, um, each stanza having four lines in that way. 
of the poem, I think is significant too, because it divides uh, into two halves by virtue of its punctuation and its shift in subject. But the first four lines uh, comment on the mercy that brought her from Africa to America, where she eventually came to know the Christian God. And it's not surprising that Wheatley can look at her transition then again in her 18th century logic and parlance from Africa to America as an act of mercy, since to her, it brings her redemption, right? Um, now, lest we think that she also views her change in social position from freedom to slavery as an act of mercy, Wheatley addresses, again, that white racism head on in the second half of the poem. So again, this is the, the argument is that I think people read Wheatley too acontextually, right? right Without a right. historicist lens, um, expecting that she's going to be articulating uh, race politics in the way that someone in 1930, mm -hmm. 1960, 1970 would be, right? It's just, exactly. it's, it's unimaginable. Now, I'll, I'll say this about the favorite line, which is a little, it takes us out of poetry for a moment and into her letters. Um, she, one of the letters, which is ultimately published, uh, it was to um, her, someone she called, no, it knew as a friend, and that is Samson Ockham, who was uh, an envoy to the Earl of Dartmouth. Um, mm. And in that, in that letter, which became an open letter later, written in 1774, um, just after Poems uh, was published, Poems on Various Subjects, published in 1773, right? Mm -hmm. um, so right after its release, that letter, which is pinned to Occam. Now Occam, it's important, is an educated Native American, right? So these are two people of color mm -hmm. writing to each other in the 18th century. Um, he was a preacher, a teacher, working under the, um, uh, the aegis of the, um, of the Earl of Dartmouth. Um, and he was wildly successful as a fundraiser um, which began in England in, uh, uh, in the 17, mid-1760s, um, where, uh, and he was largely responsible for the money that uh, helped to found Dartmouth College, mm. right? which originally was supposed to be a school for Indians in Connecticut, but of course it ended up uh, where it is today in New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> he was also notably the first Native American to publish writings in English. Um, and so he and Wheatley shared that benchmark as well. Mm. Um, so there's a lot going on in that letter from Wheatley to Occam. Um, and Wheatley's words in the letter, I think, help to quell any doubt that she is bloodless, in quotation marks again, unracial mm -hmm. or unconcerned about the plight of the Africans. So, um, I wanted to share that one of the lines from the letter. Um, and I think it's important because um, not only is the final rhetorical gesture that she makes in the letter, um, arguably the most poignant one, it is one of my favorite lines by Wheatley uh, for also being among the finest examples from the 18th century of what we would today colloquially, we would call throwing shade. Right. So um, in that concluding statement in the letter, she says to Occam, how well the cry for liberty and the reverse disposition for the exercise of oppressive power over others agree. I humbly think it does not require the penetration of a philosopher 
to determine. Mm. Now, it, it, for me, it's that combination again of sardonic tone, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? With a powerful rhetorical turn of phrase, the penetration of a philosopher, which, you know, would be the met- metaphorical equivalent today of saying it doesn't take a rocket scientist, right? Yep, you yep. Know, right? So I, 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 for all kinds of reasons, I love that line. But for me, reading, again, her context, mm-hmm. reading the poetry alongside her letters, you get a fuller view, right, of Wheatley's worldview um, that I think uh, just Redding and some of those er- those early critics in the 30s, uh, 40s, just they just got wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that th- those are my two go tos um, that I love. I love to talk about in just ter- terms of e- really exemplifying um, the reverse of what Redding claims about mm-hmm. Wheatley. Mm-hmm. I, I love that line. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And I did not know anything about Occam. So I'm, I'm definitely read the rest a, of a, another amazing figure in his own right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to take that rabbit hole after our conversation um, <laughs> to sort of circle back to what you're talking about before about y- your essay, looking at the history of the criticism of mm-hmm. Lee, um leads me to my next question. Um, because you, what you write about doesn't only just look at her remarkable life and writing, but it's it's really a close examination of the evolution of the criticism and analysis of her work and how the voices speaking about Wheatley, and I'm, I'm going to quote you, reads like a sociological graph of changing racial attitudes. Mm-hmm. So for those who aren't familiar with her work um, or, you know, are intimately familiar with the criticism of her works uh-huh. that you are. Can you explain, you know, and you have a, to a point already, but can you explain sort of the how and why her work fell out of favor with critics, um, treating her as a symbol, even condemning her, as you said, um, in that bloodless for her perceived lack of racial solidarity. Does mm-hmm. that, can you just kind of walk us through the sort of, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the tide of that as, as your title, as your title suggests? Yeah, so this is hard to summarize, okay. uh, but I do think it, um, because in, in many ways it does get at the heart uh, of what is the driving thesis in the essay. So for, exactly. for the fullest, you know, treatment of this, I, I do recommend um, the essay, not just because it's mine, but I think it's where you get the fullest sense of this. Um, but in essence, what I uh, try to argue there is that Wheatley uh, has variously been represented by critics um, as the black genius whose intellectual capacity is allowed, and this is over time, right? Mm -hmm. So has been allowed to languish under the cruelty of slavery. She's been seen as the religious devotee, right? Whose piety and missionary fervor exceed any concern for her own station of servitude. Mm-hmm. which we hear from uh, the likes of Redding. She's been um, looked at and held up as the finest example of American poetic production from the 18th century. She's been looked at as a race traitor, right? Uh, who's unconcerned about the plight of her people. She's been read, a la myself and others, as the subtly subversive poetic liberationist, right? Um, and she's certainly been known, and I think appropriately so, as the sort of primogenitor of African-American literature. Um, mm-hmm. And now I think in all of these um, instances, what seems to persist, um, even over time, is the power and the compelling 
nature of Wheatley's rhetorical serviceability, right, as a mm-hmm. symbol of one thing or another. So um, I'll, I'll, just a few examples, which may help to kind of clarify what I'm, I'm uh, what I try to get at here. And one of her earliest, um, one of her earliest contemporaneous critics was uh, none other than Thomas Jefferson, right? Or um, TJ, as I like to call him, uh, when uh, those of us who work on Jefferson a lot, um, <laughs> um, who's just, he does a very dismissive and, der- and derisive reading of Wheatley in his 1985 notes on the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it was really, uh, it, it, it's, it was done in an effort to really just prop up white supremacy. And so by doing so, and, and, and I recommend going and I mean, if you just Google Jefferson and Phyllis Wheatley, though he misspells the name Wheatley, he it's a, and, and there's a, and that's, in, you know, there's argument that that's intentional too, because mm-hmm. she was wildly well-known mm-hmm. by the time Jefferson would have written notes on the state of Virginia, mm-hmm. right? So um, there's contention that Jefferson is also likely um, throwing shade of his own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, um, but if you look up notes on the state of Virginia and Phyllis Wheatley, the the sections will come up straight away. It's not they're not hard to find because no, otherwise, I mean, you know, if, uh, the commitment to notes on state of Virginia is a big commitment. So just okay. uh, um, that part. So right. <laughs> so um, by by doing so, Jefferson's uh, text really is in conversation with a number of other commentators from the late eighteenth century and uh, through the mid middle of the nineteenth century. Um, who utilized Wheatley's achievements both to bolster arguments uh, either for slavery, right, or to argue uh, for slavery's abolition. You know, look at what an incredible mind is being ruined uh, under this horrible institution. Mm-hmm. So both of those things were, ha- and you have evidence of both of them happening in the in that late 18th century, early 19th century period. So for those for these critics, um, I think poems, uh, the 1773 uh, volume was significant as an indication of racial capacity itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Jefferson demeans her poetic output, right? Doesn't read it, doesn't comment on the, the poetry in any specific way, just is derisive of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and some very, very stereotypical, horrifying ways. Um, and there are abolitionists who hold it up. Again, they're not reading it either, but they're right. just holding up the evidence of just the existence of this Black woman writing a book, of po- right, publishing a book itself um, is, uh, is an incredible um, uh, accomplishment, right? So this, then in the first half of the 20th century, um, we witness a rise in what I call the sort of biographical curiosity and criticism uh, about Wheatley, uh, her story, her biography, especially by a new generation of African-American elites. Uh, and those writings, which I talk about in the, uh, in the essay, uh, are in the vein of what I would call racial uplift, right? Mm-hmm. So the personal and political stakes for that era of Black writers and thinkers was especially um, high, and I think should not be underestimated in terms of their commitment to rate the politics of racial uplift. Um, 
And the racial uplift climate of the early 20th century also made it almost inevitable that these critics would dismiss Wheatley uh, as a worthy ally. Because the story of Wheatley criticism is practiced by the Harlem Renaissance intelligentsia, given its preoccupation, again, as we talked about earlier, with race consciousness, mm-hmm. right, in a very early 20th century lens and frame, reflects those critics' co- political concerns um, more than a serious engagement with Wheatley or her work. So, right. so you know, it's profound, so profound, I think, in some ways, was the rejection of Wheatley, that it was repeated nearly wholesale uh, throughout the 1960s, mm. when Wheatley was almost uniformly um, viewed unfavorably, you could, as you can imagine, right, through the 1960s where Black power and, I mean, all of these very radical notions, right, of what resistance looked like uh, and who were the heroes and heroines one was going to hold up in what, you know, what would be the usable past right. to describe that, his, that you know, that history, right? Um, so it creates a kind of canon that doesn't, um, that doesn't conveniently fit Wheatley in it. So she has to be in many ways written off, written out, right? right. So I think as scholars shifted in the 1980s, right, to a more historicist and contextually bound reconsideration, and we talk about that shift in the essay uh, of Wheatley, uh, I think a far more sympathetic and forgiving portrait of her life mm-hmm. and of her work begins to emerge. Uh, and no longer are we simply calling for an appreciation of Wheatley's context to render our readings of her work more sympathetic and generous. Rather, our appreciation of her context makes possible Wheatley's full identification within the racial pantheon, right, as both artist and intellectual. And I think that shift effectively helps to authorize uh, her would-be critics, uh, or authorizes her would-be critics, so that they no longer need to begin their considerations of her in a defensive posture. So I don't think you have right. to start today by explaining away right. Um, right. why we need to look at Wheatley. Um, and so I argue in the, in the essay that um, it necessitates appreciating the normative and hegemonic cultural and political forces that constrained Wheatley's writing while also informing renewed considerations about her reception and standing of her work over time. So that's what the essay tries to do. Um, And I think in our contemporary moment, critics from a diversity of orientations um, and methodologies and even um, disciplines, historians, literary folks as well, right, uh, have taken up Wheatley and her works to answer important scholarly questions um, that are informed by um, their own critical preoccupations of those subfields. And I think that's probably among the surest sign of the progress of what we might call Wheatley's canonization in Mm. uh, the American literary tradition. So I hope um, that the essay helps to uh, make the case, right, Mm -hmm. um, for a way of thinking about uh, both canons and canonicity, right, and how those what, what are the, the political nature of how those are informed, right? Because we're always in search of a usable past to answer 
um, the current, our current realities, right? Right, right, yeah. Um, and so I think there's a place for Wheatley in that, but the place, the place for her must, um, um, must take seriously a historicist and a, uh, and a context, um, um, uh, a context-laden frame um, that really gives her her fullest reading in terms of what was possible uh, given the constraints under which someone like her was working. And today, you know, we see examples of Wheatley everywhere. I mean, you know, the, just as a, as a, almost not as a meme, but as a kind of uh, a figure, right? A, a, right. a symbol, right? Um, we, Phyllis Wheatley has a Facebook page, which is one right. of the things I discovered when I was doing work on her um, uh, a few years ago uh, at the American Antiquarian Society. There uh, is a relatively new sculpture that uh, with her along with Abigail Adams and Lucy Stone um, that sits, a very large uh, life-size sculpture that sits along the um, Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, right? Mm -hmm. um, she was a popular choice for many years uh, in the early to mid uh, and even um, uh, 80s, uh, up to the 80s, popular choice for naming of schools, particularly elementary schools. There are a number of them across the country that bear her name, right? Mm -hmm. uh, particularly those in minority serving uh, districts. Mm -hmm. and, um, and just, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, that we're having this conversation today because just this past weekend, a friend of mine who was on uh, on his way to the Cape um, snapped a picture and sent uh, a text to me of a boat that was docked in Boston Harbor that bore the name the Phyllis Wheatley. Oh right? my goodness. So I, I'm curious about who the owner is of the boat. Right, me too. It was just, <laughs> just fat. So, I mean, she really um, has, as a symbol, worked uh, been working as a symbol for a long time and in some ways continues in that in that symbolic realm too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is also interesting. I, I have, I, I had about 17 sub questions as you, as you explained, <laughs> but I want, I want to respect your time. The one thing I did want to say, which I just, I, I read in your paper, but it wasn't until like, talking this, this conversation that it, it really struck me was how, um, I find it very amusing that Jefferson and the abolitionists were both just barking their points and you her up and as you said not even reading it and I, my note I just jotted down as you said that was it's like Twitter it's like here's a here's a thing I'm mad about it and it's like did you even read the thing like you it's like the people are just yelling at each other on both sides it's just the Twitter of their day basically I just wrote social media question mark well Mary Alice <laughs> you said it let the record show that you said it <laughs> but I, I I certainly I certainly agree I mean it is um it is one of the things that is stunning when you read almost mm. any of the critics from the 18th century, early 19th century of any that actually read, do a reading of or quoting of the poems, right? right. Um, it's all about what Wheatley represents, the right? Idea. So yep. she's this kind of floating signifier, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's what's fascinating about that. So you can have literally people on both sides of a very contentious debate using the same um text or subject as right. it were right yeah. um but without uh, again only possible because they're actually not reading the text right and uh, it, but it, it also it, yeah and it speaks to the necessity for a more complex viewing of her yeah, which is what, you know I, that 360 just, has to happen like yeah i mean i just i i worry that um you know one of the ways of thinking about the history of conflict 
in American public life Mm. um, is that the paradigm that seems to um, to hold the most sway over time is that we do not uh, let the details or the uh, content or this the nuance of the issues involved get in the way of our deeply held beliefs. Right. So, right. you know, um, and, you know, I think this is an example of that. We can certainly cite many examples of it today where um, people have fervently held beliefs about things that uh, they've not always done the homework on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I worry about what it means, you know, for things like the, the public square, mm-hmm. what it means for the Democratic Commons, if we literally, if, if nuance um, is, is no longer possible, uh, because right. it, it just, I think that really gets in the way of us having real conversations mm-hmm. about really important issues um, and about coming to understand each other better. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That's, that's, it's important. Yeah, because that's not a conversation. That's just two people giving speeches. You know? That's right. There's no listening going on. If that's that's exactly that. right. Interesting. So interesting. Um, so do you think there are parallels with this evolution of criticism of Wheatley's work? Do you do you see that with other writers or notable figures? Are there similar sort of uh, ebbs and flows? That is this sort of a common lifespan for, for, for folks mm-hmm. either from that era or in general? Do, do you see any of that? I think there are many authors whose lives uh, and writing get revisited long after they're dead. Uh, right. I will say that. Um, Wheatley, of course, has the advantage of having a long period <laughs> to write of right. time over many of the other uh, writers that we might consider. Um, but that you know, there are many of them that get reassessed long after they're they're dead. Um, and I think the advent of cultural studies uh, in the 1980s. Um, and 90s, and the expanded curricula in higher education have really opened up more exciting reevaluations, right? Mm-hmm. So they're just, you know, um, figures like Wheatley, um, like Occam, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, so they're just people that, um, um, that are in some ways being rediscovered. Um, mm-hmm. And one that, you know, comes to mind a more contemporary example, and one that I've long been engaged with is, of course, James Baldwin. Um, Baldwin was lauded for his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Um, but his fame peaked, again, for his time during the civil rights era um, upon the publication of his essays uh, in, on, on race relations in The Fire Next Time, right, in 1963. And really reputationally was never um, really stable after that in terms of its height, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he always enjoyed a, cer- a certain amount of, uh, of fame and, notor- to be sure, and notoriety, right, uh, as well. But um, his later novels were met with diminishing critical acclaim. Mm-hmm. Um, people absolutely didn't know what to do with Giovanni's Room that came after the fire, uh, after um, um, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, you know, a, a novel that is, was called Raceless, again, because mm-hmm. it had no black characters, took place in Europe, and um, 
And so, you know, people had no idea, like, what do you, what does that mean? A black gay writer has written a book that doesn't take place, take place in America with no black characters in it. Is it African-American fiction? Is it, you know, so mm. in some ways the, the critical apparatus wasn't prepared to deal with Baldwin at, at the time, right? Um, his later novels uh, and, and his attempts at film, uh, screenwriting, um, not to mention, you know, his bumpy relationship, even in his explorations in the theater, uh, during his time, um, didn't get near the acclaim uh, that they have uh, since. And mm -hmm. I think that um, uh, that dichotomy where there was an early period of genius writing uh, that gradually declined is no longer the critical assessment that we have um, of Baldwin, right? Uh, my colleague, Eddie Gloud uh, at Princeton, um, uh, said a few years ago that today Jimmy is everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, not long after Baldwin's death in 87, there was a kind of critical resurgence of interest um, that began. And um, what many have, I think, rightly called a kind of renaissance, Baldwin renaissance. And in part, you know, I, I feel in a small way, I participated in that with the publication of a book in, in 1999 um, called uh, James Baldwin Now. Um, and there's a whole story about how that book came into being. It was actually um, started from a panel at the MLA, uh, the Modern Language Association mm -hmm. meeting in 1997. It was on the 10th anniversary of Baldwin's uh, death. Um, and we got such an overwhelming response from the called, called papers that I thought we have to do something here. This is, I had no idea this many people were thinking about, but mm -hmm. we must've gotten 40 calls for three papers, right, on a panel. So right. um, that's how that project uh, came into being. Um, I think in part, um, much of that renewed interest is fueled by the widening of disciplinary tools, right, and methodologies. Again, mm -hmm. just um, more, the ability to really do more um, with the, uh, the cultural issues, the gender issues, the sexuality, the issues of nation and nationality that race and ethnicity that Baldwin was in many ways ahead of the critical apparatus, right? In terms of the level of sophistication with which he was working in his, uh, in his work. So, I mean, it, it's, um, it would have been inconceivable that a journal focused on Baldwin like the James Baldwin Review, which full disclosure, I'm one of the founding editors uh, <laughs> for as well, um, that that could have existed in the 1980s, uh, mm -hmm. much less the 1960s, right? When Baldwin's fame was really at its height. Um, but in 2022, right, that journal um, is now being read in over a hundred countries around the world. Um, and to say nothing of Baldwin, similar to Wheatley in this way, his serviceability as a figure, right? right for social justice movements like Black Lives Matter outside mm -hmm. of the academic world. I mean, he's quoted yeah. everywhere. He's a meme yeah. everywhere. All over Instagram. You know, he's <laughs> all over, right? I mean, yeah. everywhere, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think there are you know, there are examples like that where writers get this kind of reconsideration or mm. um, renewal of energy or renaissance um, in part because um, they were before their time, right? They mm -hmm. weren't the critical apparatus wasn't prepared to deal with ready. what they were bringing to the table. Yeah. yeah, yeah, couldn't understand it yet. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I and I was struck when you were talking about criticism, sort of the when the lows of the of the, the criticism of both of these writers, how 
convention um, is is convenient and it's easy and it doesn't involve curiosity or 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 think you know what I mean people asking yeah. questions you just you just sort of digest oh that's so and so and we think this about them now that's right um and it's just because it's easy you know and it doesn't get it's harder to think critically about things and to ask questions and so I'm just I'm I'm so with this and 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 I'm so grateful for your paper because it's 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 sparked so much more curiosity um and I hope it will for other readers Thank um you. Yeah, absolutely. My last question, without, again, without getting totally into the, the end of your essay, which was just beautifully written, I, I wanted to touch on, um, you know, your metaphor of the tide um, and mm. the, the title of your piece and, and how you note that, you know, that it, that it will crest, or I'm sorry, crest to curl and then crash, um, which I just thought was beautiful. And it, it was dramatic and a little jolting, but also filled my heart anyway with a little bit of hope. And I wanted to know mm -hmm. what what brings you hope in this, um, the years that we've had in terms of of, mm -hmm. of thinking about that rising tide and, and where we're at right now. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and uh, it may, I'll answer this way. It may, it may seem almost naive and it's certainly a bit cliche to say, uh, but I, I really do believe um, that every day brings an opportunity for new hope. Um, that, that's how I live my life. Uh, every day is an opportunity for progress, um, another chance to put a chink in the armor of white supremacy, uh, of anti-Blackness, right? Another occasion to improve um, the lives um, of all of us, uh, to create a more equitable and inclusive world. Um, and it's hard to um, it's hard to discuss in um, quick snippets and sound bites and excerpts, right? Uh, in no small part because often the opportunities for hope are born out of tragedies mm. and terrible injustices. Right? Mm. Um, to only see the progress, right, which is one of the ways in which. We want to, we just want to move on from race and we don't want to mm -hmm. talk about it, but to only see the progress is to ignore the suffering, right? It dishonors those who are harmed by constant inequities that persist in our society, mm -hmm. right? So that's what, and, and, and I resist, and people resist that, right? Because when you do that to only think about this triumphalist American history, right, um, is to literally do violence to people who are living a reality that says, that's not my, that's not what's happening to me every day on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a part of why I, uh, I, I structured um, the essay in social research around the metaphor of tides. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that it, it ebbs and it flows, right? Mm -hmm. um, just like tragedy and hope. Mm -hmm. And um, a concrete example, uh, it's hard not to point to uh, uh, the consciousness shift uh, that has happened in the country in the wake of George Floyd. Well, not even the country, but globally, really, mm -hmm. in, the, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Um, Black Lives Matter, of course, was around and mobilizing before his death, but um, but the issues became truly global, um, and in terms of the expression of of anger and frustration 
outrage, um, but also solidarity, right? Mm -hmm. That flowed during the summer of that very, very intense summer of 2020, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's not something to, um, to let pass lightly. I, I think it's really something for us to continue to, uh, to think about. I think it's important to note too um, that the ongoing fights for social justice, for inclusivity and for equity aren't just racial. Um, it's becoming almost a cliche, right? To say that when we're discussing race, we're also simultaneously discussing gender, sexuality and class. But the fact that that notion, which at one time was a very radical idea mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is actually today quite critically and theoretically commonplace, that in and of itself to me represents an opportunity for a kind of hope, right? In, a, in the world, it, even in a world as crazy as the one we live in, trying to find that place every day to renew hope, right, uh, is so important to me and to my, just to how I, how I need to be in the world, to do the work I need to do. And mm -hmm. the, the last thing I'd say about it is, um, the simple fact that an essay like this one um, focused on a poet whose neoclassical verse um, is difficult, right? And whose politics are complicated and from another era uh, and with such a bold declaration about white supremacy so openly out uh, in the argument, um, that it would be published and discussed in that time, and, and again, still being discussed today, again, provides another occasion for hope. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Wheatley herself didn't have access uh, to such bold and frank language um, with which to speak truth to power as we do today. And so I feel like it's an obligation to make sure that uh, as we think about the prehistory, right? The usable past for this moment we're living through. Right. Um, I think her voice still has a lot to teach us um, in this moment about um, about those ebbs and flows, mm -hmm. right? Between hope and tragedy. And um, if indeed, um, and I still believe that Dr. King was right that the arc of the moral universe bends um, toward justice. Uh, ultimately, that's what that's what sustains me. Thank you so much. That was so beautifully said. And she used the tools she had yeah. and, and what she, she, what she had a pen and, and, and a brilliant mind, you know, and, yeah. and did what she could. And I feel like that, that, that's, that's just, a, that's just a beautiful takeaway. So thank you so much for your essay and for your time today. This has been a wonderful conversation and I, I can't wait for the rest of our readers and listeners to, to read your essay in full. Thank you, Mary Alice. Thank you so much for this conversation today too. I really enjoyed our time. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.